This is Learned It From An 80s Song. I am your coach, Patricia Freiberg. This is I Love The 80s meets the healing of storytelling and the positive impact of music. Inspiring guests share their powerful stories, yielding incredible strengths. Through both story and music, this podcast will elevate your mood, providing you with a positive outlook. It will ignite recall so that you can tap into your own life experiences. We don't just hear the knowledge and wisdom gained from our podcast guests. Through powerful story, we can live it. Welcome to Learned It from an 80s song. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce to you today... Tabby Kerwin. Tabby is not only an award-winning mindset coach and best-selling author, but she's also the owner of Mode 4 and the CEO of Perform Experience. Perform Experience is a truly transformative program that empowers individuals and organizations to build emotional fitness, protect mental health, and perform at their best. But that's not all. Tabby is also a positive psychologist and a mental health and well-being expert who combines her professional expertise with her own lived experiences. After losing her husband, Simon, in 2018, Tabby has been using her personal journey through grief to help others grow and flourish and to find their own path to happiness and success. Tabby's approach is both compassionate and effective, and her dedication to helping others is truly awe-inspiring. So whether you're looking to improve your mindset, build emotional resilience, or to simply find a way to navigate the ups and downs of life, Tabby is the person you need to know. So without further ado, let's give a very warm welcome to the one and only Tabby Kerwin. Tabby, it is so great to have you here today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here and it's great to be chatting with you again. I know. I, I have to tell you, audience, how I've gotten to know Tabby. We were both at the World at Wahasu, the World Happiness Summit, and we were both coach facilitators. And instantly, and we'll talk a little bit about this later when we get to strengths. But instantly when I saw and met Tabby, she had such a great energy and you just wanted to be in her presence. So I couldn't be happier to have you here today. And thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks so much. That's so kind. So this is the part of the show where we have the big reveal as to what song we're going to be talking about today. So without further ado, Tabby. What is the song that best resonates with the story you're going to tell us today? Can I get a drum roll, please? What is your song, Tabby? It is Chicago's You're the Inspiration. Ah, yes. What an incredible song choice. And Chicago hasn't, in the history, in the long history of several years of Learned It From Lady Song, Chicago hasn't come in yet. So you are the first. It's the first. You are the first. So let's talk a little bit about this song. First off, you're the inspiration. It was released in 1984 as part of Chicago's album, Chicago 17. The song was written uh, by the band's bassist. We all know him, Peter Cetera, and the composer, David Foster. Now, the song was inspired by Cetera's wife. Yes, Diane Nini and whom he had just married right before writing the song. So uh, that is pretty cool. The song was an enormous hit. I mean, everybody who lived during that time and beyond, if you listen to Yacht Rock, you know this song, and it is incredible. Uh, The song was a massive hit, reaching number three spot uh, on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 and topping the adult contemporary charts for three weeks. Now, this song was covered by many artists, including David Hasselhoff and the Ten Tenors. Now, what's so funny about 
David Hasselhoff, you know, it's funny that like certain <laughs> things in life, I just was talking about David Hasselhoff on Monday with a friend. We were having coffee and and I hadn't even seen, you know, the stats on this. But here he is again, David Hasselhoff. Oh, I remember him. Yeah, I remembered him from uh, Baywatch, of Baywatch. course. <laughs> yeah, was on but... Saturday afternoons here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yes, that's right. And so what was interesting was that, you know, he really was a singer and super apparently, you know, I'm here in Switzerland and I was talking about it. And uh, somebody had told me that in Germany, David Hasselhoff was like Germans love David Hasselhoff. And I just thought that I don't remember him as much as a singer and as a, a musician. No. I remember him more he from Baywatch and Night Rider and yeah. Night Rider. Oh, yeah. I mean, hello. He did one kit as a car. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. So uh, so it was very interesting that he he came up today in very much 80s. Right. So yeah. we got Night Rider coming in yeah, right there. Um, now, we can't they talk about the song without talking about that amazing saxophone solo. And that is by Don Merrick. So uh, that legendary saxophonist and absolutely beautiful. The song actually uh, was used recently in the movie. Uh, it's been in many films, but it was recently in the Guardians of the Galaxy. So uh, we got to hear that. And I remember hearing that. And I, I always appreciate movies that I take my kids to that have throwback songs or, yeah. you know, have some some something for us adults as well. I was gonna say, there has to be a payoff for us taking them, doesn't there? So, you know, <laughs> yes. sometimes, it's a song, sometimes it's being able to have a two hour nap. Sometimes, you know, there has to be a payoff. 100 percent. You are absolutely right. So before we get into how the song resonates and and for you to tell us all about the um, the song, uh, why don't you first share with us your story? Okay, so the story of where I am now has been, I guess, that all the steps um, of my life that have led me to here. And really, when you look at it, it's not a it's not a happy story. It's been lots and lots of sad stories along the way, but for every sad story, it has just made me so much stronger, so much more full of hope and seeing possibilities and wanting to do more. And I suppose really the story started for me when I was 16 um, and my dad died. He uh, was living with cancer. He had uh, lung cancer and throat cancer and it spread and he died in 1994 when I was just 16. And that was a really, really hard time, mainly because... I didn't get the opportunity to grieve. I wasn't allowed to be a child and supported in that way. Within 48 hours of him dying, I was back at boarding school. And in some way, that was absolutely the best place for me to be. But back then, early 90s, you know, there wasn't the support that there is now for grief, especially for children when they experience grief. So it was good that I was there and I was just within what felt like a safe place rather than having to be at home or anything else. But I was just kind of, if I appeared to be okay, then I was obviously okay. So I was just left to get on with it. Right. Um, so, and I guess that became a little bit of a theme for my life. If I appeared to be okay, then I could just get on with things. Yes. So I just kind of masked it because that's what I could see and feel people felt comfortable with. They felt comfortable with me being okay because then they didn't have to ask the hard questions or anything like that. Yes. So it started then. And, you know, my coping mechanisms weren't, weren't all that healthy. I had to become the adult straight away. Even when I went back home, you know, I was with my mom. I was the adult in the relationship for a period. And it wasn't that long before she got together with someone else who, to this day, she's still with. You know, they've been married over 20 years, which is great, but it was not very long. So then it was like, okay, well, that's done. I am better being independent and at boarding school and things. Um, so, you know, I went through the the teenage thing, all girls boarding school, lots of eating disorders around, lots of unhealthy coping mechanisms. So for me, you know, going into that territory of, you know, bulimia and things like that, that felt like a good coping mechanism, but not for very long for me because I realized there was something better. So I just kept learning and plowing myself into what, it, what I wanted to do. And it's interesting that people who I have uh, reconnected with now who I was either at school with or at university you know and this is like 25 30 years on and they all went back then you were always the one that had it together that knew what they were going to do you didn't necessarily know how to get there but you were just always determined to do it and I, and I find that really interesting because 
I'm not sure I did know what I wanted to do because actually I just kept doing what people expected. Mm -hmm. So I went on to study music. I went to a music conservatoire, which was great. It was four years that I say was a bit of a waste of time of my life because I knew, you know, my heart wasn't fully in it. I could do it. I was good at it. I knew I would carry on afterwards. But even when I was there, I was fighting for what I wanted to do, which wasn't what they were offering me. But I was just there because that was what was expected. You know, I remember after my dad died, I remember being told within a week, uh, you know, to told to go and do uh, play in a music competition. He was a musician. And this phrase always resonates with me. It's what daddy would have wanted. And that really, I think about that so often, especially any time I speak to someone going through something hard, especially free. And it's like, yeah, but what do you want? Because we're yeah. never And you know, you think about this. If you speak to someone, and perhaps they've just experienced the loss or some kind of trauma, we don't always ask them how they're doing. We ask, how's so-and-so? How are the children managing? How's your mum managing? Whoever it is, we never ask about the person we're talking about. And this has become so apparent to me over my life. If anyone was asking about my dad, it was always, how's your mum doing? Yeah, and it's like, well, yeah. what about me? You know, and I'm, I'm really conscious of this now, but I think it's so true. We often, we often do that. And so, so, yeah, the story started with that. And, you know, I became I became okay with grief because I didn't have any option. And then you kind of get so far down the line. It's like, well, it's six months. It's a year, whatever. People don't care now. I can't talk about it now. I can't say I'm feeling hard things now. So you just keep suppressing them. And I just did. I just kept suppressing and suppressing and suppressing. I always had this uh, feeling that, you know, I would be the last of my girlfriends that, you know, was with somebody, the last one to get married, the last one to have kids. As a consequence, I ended up being the first one, (laughs) (laughs) you know, which is great now that I have the adult child and all my friends have small children. I'm like, I'm free. Yes. (laughs) You know, know, there were some good points. But yeah, so it wasn't the right relationship. You know, that marriage, it, it lasted a long time, but it didn't last forever. And I became, and that is not the fault of anyone, but it is a lot to do with how I wasn't coping. When I was in that marriage, I was really struggling with my mental health and I was living with depression. I was living with anxiety. I didn't go to any any professionals at the time. And it wasn't, even if I said it to people close to me, they were like, yeah, you're fine. They didn't believe it. Even if I said I'm struggling in my relationship, they were like, oh, yeah, no, but you're the best couple ever. And it was this. So when we split, everything became my fault. Um, and that, that was hard as well. But I, the reason we split was because I knew I could be happier. And I knew if I wasn't happy, my son couldn't be happy. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know how or where. But I had to go and do something. I had to make a change, whether it was the right or the wrong one. I had to make that change. And that really came when I had this point where I was driving home one night late and I got a puncture on my car and, and, I, and I could change the tire. That's not a problem. And I got out of the car. But in that moment, I could see these headlights of a truck coming towards me. And in that moment, the most rational and sensible thing to me felt like stand in front of that truck. That was it. It was this thought and it was fleeting. Yes. And in that moment, and I think for a lot of people, if it lasts longer in a moment, then obviously they they go with that. They follow that intuition mm-hmm. and they do end their lives. But for me, in that moment, that was like, hang on, this is the sign that you have to make a change. And when I got home and when I said, look, this has just happened, I was pretty much laughed at, not laughed at in my face but it was like almost a nervous laugh and I thought yeah I'm not going to get the support here I have to do this alone and that's when I knew I had to leave that relationship I had to do the things and that really became for me you know that that ground zero of okay Mm. now I need to change things and I had this 10-year period with anxiety and depression with no support whatsoever but I brought myself out of it and this is going back now over 10 years ago and that because I just got this mantra in my head of create my happy I have to create my happiness. I have to choose it. Every single day, I have to do something that makes me feel good. And I work, you know, we'll talk about strengths, I'm sure, in a bit. And I'm aware that one of my key strengths is kindness. But when that goes too far, it becomes your saboteur. It becomes Mm. a people pleaser. And that Mm -hmm. can be really, and that was what was happening. I'd spent all my life pleasing everyone else doing what they expected because that's what daddy would have expected 
going back to boarding school, being on my own because that's what I was told to do, going to music college because that was what was expected. All these things had been for other people. Mm-hmm. And this was where I got to the point of, okay, this is going to be really hard and I'm willing to walk away with absolutely nothing. And I remember my mom saying, well, you can't, you know, you you are, you deserve to have half of everything or this. And I said, I don't want it. I have to start as me and I don't know who I am. So I started this pathway to find me and it's really long. It's really long. It's, you know, it's, it's going to be forever working it out, but I do. And in this time, you know, I really, my brother had always struggled um, with mental illness, a lot of it undiagnosed. Mm -hmm. He had PTSD as a consequence of being in the military. He was in Northern Ireland. He really struggled with what I would say. I mean, he's, he's dead now, but was undiagnosed bipolar mm-hmm. and I would started on this journey in 2011 of making these changes to getting better and then in 2014 my brother actually died and I got that call to say that Mark was dead and he was he was not that old you know he wasn't even 50 when he died and even though it wasn't ruled as suicide because he hadn't left a note to say that was his intention I knew I knew that he had done himself and all the evidence in the coroner's report he was a clever guy you know, everything that was in the coroner's report, mm-hmm. it's it's not something that just happened. Right. So I did. And I felt a sense of relief almost for him because he wasn't in pain. But mm-hmm. it also then reignited my mission of I need to talk about everything I've gone through. I need to talk about Mark's story. I need to talk about all these things. And I need to learn because people are not being open about how they feel. And this is resulting in death for yeah. a lot of people right so I did I started talking about things and I became open which was quite hard in some ways because my you know with anxiety it was very much a social anxiety so as a musician I would go and I would stand in front of thousands of people I remember being stood at Old Trafford on the middle of the pitch playing 76,000 people live millions worldwide on sky and wow. I didn't care. I loved it it was a buzz it was amazing and there was no sense of fear it was excitement but if I had to walk into the pub after doing that with a group of five people I knew I'm like no I'm full on shakes wanting to be sick it, you know this social anxiety it really had hold of it so I started talking about it what I found when I started talking about what I'd experienced in mental health that other people would say to me that really resonates that's my story too mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I haven't seen anybody And we see these statistics, you know, one in four people will be affected by, you know, mental ill health every year. And I just think it's that's it's a a guide, but it's not an accurate reflection because I had 10 years and I never once was in a survey. I never once went to a medical professional. I'm not included. Right. People were telling me, you know, thousands of people were telling me that they felt the same because I put it out on social media and they hadn't seen anyone. So the issue was far bigger than we knew at the time so I thought I'm you know I'm going to talk about this I'm going to almost document this path that I'm on because if it helps one person it's worth talking about even if like that feels really scary to me you know doing Mm -hmm. this I have to do it and I have to do it to you know I, I speak to my son a lot about this and he's 19 now and we've had a lot of very open and honest conversations since he was very young um and and I think he's appreciated that honest um, approach that I've had because it's helped him to be strong and understand and right. know that it's if he's feeling not right, then we talk about it, you know, and he passes that on. So if you talk about it with one person and then they pass that on, then gradually, you know, this this ripple, it builds and we help yes. people. Amazing. So I experienced the death of my dad, my brother, and... In that time, I'd um, met the absolute love of my life. We started our business together. We'd been friends for years and then both found ourselves single uh, relationships. And it was like, do you know what? All this time, yeah, we, we have loved each other. Shall we give this a go kind of thing? And it was just, it was never easy because we both had kids from different relationships. There's always the perceptions of other people. Oh, you know, oh, they've been having this illicit affair for years. No, <laughs> you know, it was just we gen- when we had space, and it was okay to have that realization. It was like, yeah, okay, this, yeah, this is meant to be. And it was something very, very special that we had. And we got married in 2016 um, and it was great. And we had, what was so good about our relationship was it was so supportive work-wise, everything we would do out of work, but we were so close, but also we had so much freedom and independence within our relationship. 
And I think that's really important to have. A lot of people don't have that. And that's what made it so unique. But in 2018, Simon, he he started with a bad back. And usual thing, sent to a physio, chiropractor, osteopath, tried all. Uh, it's your age because he was uh, 57 at the time. You know, it's like your age, you just got a bad back. That's it. And then one night he went off to work. He was the bandmaster of one of the military bands over here. And he went to work and he texted me about two hours after he'd left. And he went, did I have a lump on my neck when I left? And I went, no. He said, I'm going to send you a photo. And it was a lump the size of a golf ball on his neck. And that's when I knew. And I went, that's not a bad back. We are getting you fast tracked and we are going to get, you know, everyone's opinion on this. And the bad back turned out to be a tumor that was pressing on his spine. Hence, physio and things weren't helping. And he was diagnosed eventually. This the pain kind of started in about the March, April time in 2018. And he was diagnosed eventually on the 4th of July. So it took a while to get a diagnosis. And what it was in the end, they could they could see that it was a tumor, but they couldn't see where it was started. And without knowing that, they couldn't treat it effectively. Mm. And it turned out that it was a form of testicular cancer. Uh, called wow. the germ cell tumor but there was nothing showing in that region of testicular region at all wow. um, and it's what is termed as a young man's cancer because normally it's only young men in their 20s that get it so consequently the treatment it was really aggressive and finally when treatment started it was it was like uh, you know they went into the consultants all had meetings together it's like who's going to take this patient because we don't know if it is GCT, because that's a young man's cancer, and he's 57. It could be a primary in the um, lungs, because that was where it's showing as well. Is it two primaries? And they were like, and eventually the GCT team went, okay, well, we'll take him, and we'll treat it as if it is this young man's tumour, and we will know within days if we got that right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So by the time he started treatment, and he started treatment on the 1st of August, so we'd had a long time now with this in his body without any treatments. You know, it'd been a long path. And by the time he started treatment, he couldn't walk. He couldn't lie down. He'd had about six weeks literally living in a fold-up garden chair because that was the only place he could get coffee. Oh. He was getting like half an hour sleep at night. He But he was still working every single day. And that meant some days going out as a musician, standing up, conducting band, and it took all his motivation and willpower and everything to do that because he'd never been a day ill in his life and he wasn't going to start being needy now and also when he was told okay we're going to treat it for this this was a diagnosis this was a treatment for cure Mm -hmm. he's like people don't need to know I'm just going to do this and get it done so he started treatment and within a few days he he was walking again he was walking around the ward the lump had gone down that was now the size of like a cricket ball had gone down wow. completely. And you could just see it. And we were like, yeah, they got it right. It is that we're treating the right thing. Wow. Which literally tracked. But the payoff was this treatment was so aggressive. He had 51 rounds of chemotherapy in 12 weeks. It was like super aggressive. And he really struggled with that. And, you know, because you're just so prone to infection, your immune system is shot to pieces. Yes. Um, so that was hard. It was hard. We were in and out of hospital all the time. He would then, you know, every time, every seven days when the cycle finished, then he'd get taken into hospital because he got an infection. And then he's like, can you bust me out of hospital? He said, I don't want to be here. So I'm having to bust him out of hospital, <laughs> you know. Um, right. And it was this process that went on. And so he started treatment on the 1st of August. And by um, end of October, those treatments had all but gone. Wow. Which was amazing. Wow. Which is why when people say, you know, he died of cancer, it's like, no, he, he beat the cancer. We have to know that he beat the cancer. But yes. what did happen was he got an infection and that um, infection, the type of chemotherapy it had meant that he would never be able to have any oxygen therapy because if he did, it would mean that his lungs were basically solidified. They just wouldn't be able to function if, if oxygen, you know, yep. oxygen hit, uh, which is quite funny because we were with the consultant and when the consultant told us this, Simon just goes to him, so are you telling me that if I'm on a plane traveling, and they say the plane's about to crash. I can't use the oxygen mask on the plane. Right. And the goes, is that really what you're going to be thinking about? Is that plane crashing? Yeah. And he went, just <laughs> the question. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of humor in this. A lot of humor along the way. Oh. 
he got this infection and they said, okay, well, we can't give him oxygen, but his oxygen levels are low. So we're going to just take him into ICU. We'll try with a kind of bubble thing over his head. So we just take pressure off the lungs and we'll just give him the gases. And that wasn't very effective. They said, I'll tell you what we're going to do. For 48 hours, we're going to put him in an induced coma just to give his body a rest and then allow those oxygen sat levels to come up. And we're like, cool. He said, like, he said I can do the rest. I'll see you in 48 hours. Wow. Three weeks later, he was dead. He never came out. He vaguely came out of the coma enough wow. to know that I was there, but he just kept getting infection after infection. In the end, it was a ventilator-associated pneumonia. So what was meant to be happy ever after ended up in being, shit, I, yeah. this is me. <laughs> you know, this is me. I've got my son. I have not got you. Also, nobody knows. And my birthday had fallen when he was in this coma. And, you know, on Facebook, I'm just getting hundreds and hundreds of messages. Everyone saying, oh, happy birthday. Hope you're having a great day. And I just thought, you know, it had never been my story to tell when he was ill. Yeah. It was his choice not to tell him. But it got to this point. I thought, I can't, I can't genuinely and honestly say thanks to you, everyone. I'm having a great day. I can't do it. Right. I'm sat right. by my husband's bed. So that was when I chose to go on social media and put, look, you know, this is the situation. Thanks so much for your love on the birth. But the reality is, you know, I'm sat here by Simon's bedside. He's been ill. He's got cancer. Uh, but he's in ICU. He's in this coma. So what I really need is all the positive vibes, prayers, whatever floats mm -hmm. your boats. Just send them his way. And he was such a popular man. And it was just, you know, this shock that came people do because he was invincible. Yeah. Um, and then it was like, yeah, this this is my reality now. And that was the first people knew. And for them, a few days later, and it was, you know, 7th of November, I had to put, well, I didn't put it on the 7th, though. I waited a couple of days so we could process it. But I had to tell people that he died. Yeah. And it was such disbelief. Mm. But yes. But coming from that, you know, I started writing my first book when I was sat by his bedside in the hospital. And it was, you know, called, it was Create My Happy. It was the three Ps, which became my philosophy, which was possibility, productivity, and performance. And it just became my philosophy. Wow. And I started writing it by his bed and I just carried on writing it and released it. But what I chose to do when Simon died was to be very open and to share a lot because there was so much, not just for me to learn, but other people to learn and right. know that whatever they're going through, they're not on their own. So yes. it was yeah. all these difficult things. And it was mainly, you know, deaths all along the way. Close people, the closest people to me in my life all died. Yeah. But it yes. gave me what I am today. Absolutely. And helping so many. And I, you know, I, first off, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm very sorry for your loss. I, you know, I knew after talking to you, um, you know, about your late husband, you know, I didn't realize that you had experienced it so young as well. And, um, and then your brother and, um, I'm sorry for your losses. And this is, uh, it's amazing to me that, you know, by his bedside, losing the love of your life which something tells me this might have something to do with the song you chose, but you're going to tell us, but, you know, knowing, you know, he's the love of your life and you sat there and you're like, I'm going to write this and I'm going to deliver this to help others yeah. uh, who to cope with this amount of grief. And um, yeah, maybe share a little bit about the song and how it resonates. And I, and I love that you're, you guys were both musicians too. And you picked yeah. such a, a musical genius kind of song like it's beautiful between the saxophone and the the voices and the composure you know the the composing and all of that it's a, you picked such a great song and i can see that being musicians that that would yes yeah it is such a great song and you know it goes back so far for me that um it it was a song um that i remember from my teenage years okay so it was a good while after the song would come out but as a, as a young musician, I would go on um, music courses, residential music courses. Now, having been brought up in this world, surrounded by classical music, doing what I was told to do um, and all the rest of it, you know, pop music hadn't really featured, but I was at an all-girls boarding school. So, you know, we got some eclectic, I picked up on everyone else's tastes and things, but it was this fun song that came about when I was on this residential music course. And someone played it in our dormitory and it was like, oh my God, I really love that song. But it was special, not necessarily because I appreciated the song for its musical merits, but because who it reminded me of. And those weeks, those courses, I absolutely loved. 
the people on them I absolutely loved, you know. So mm -hmm. that was what I associated it with. And then when I went back to boarding school and I was then going on the train at the weekend up to music college to do as an additional, and, you know, I was there with my mixtape and my Walkman on the yeah. train. And it's like, I've got it on loop because it's reminding me of all those good times. So it was this song that really boosted my positive emotions because it reminded me of people and fun that I'd had when I felt really free and able to be me because yes. I was with, you know, people that really got me. So, yes, it was a song I kind of had on loop all through my teenage years. So it was always there. It was always connected. And then when I went back, you know, reconnected with those people if we met up on a night out, you know, karaoke, that would be the song that came out, you know, one of them mm -hmm. anyway, along with um, Tiffany, I think you're alone now, you know, those, yes. these are the songs that all come <laughs> out, you know. Yeah. Um, and so it was a comfort, this song. But it wasn't until I really, really appreciated it for the lyrics, for the musicality, which is when Simon died. And I heard it, it was a couple of days after he died. And it just, it, it made me feel good because it boosted those positive emotions in the same way it had done 20 odd years before. Mm -hmm. But then I listened to the words mm. and I just thought, oh my God, you know, this, this is, yeah, this is it. He was everything that was in that song. He absolutely was my inspiration and still is which is wow. why I'm still so connected to it now. You know, everything I do is not for him, but it's because of him. And I had this because he was with me through my recovery from depression and anxiety. And he was my, you know, one of two positive things in my life, my son being the other. I always thought that I was better and recovered because of him, because mm -hmm. he made me that way. But mm -hmm. when he died, I realized it was because it wasn't because of him. It was because he had equipped me with the tools to do it myself. And that is the most amazing gift anyone can give them. Empower them to do something themselves. And that really comes into my coaching work as well. You know, people come to me and say, you know, can you fix me? It's like, I can. But what is the point in that? Because yeah. all that's going to happen is I'm going to get stronger and you're not. I'll tell you what I do. I'll equip you with the strategies to fix yourself, you know, and that is, that's what that song reminds me of. And it's what Simon did for me. So yeah, that's, that's how it, it changed over the kind of course of 30 years. The meaning of the song has totally changed for me, but it yeah. still is the one song that brings a smile and a tear and makes me feel every emotion all in one. Oh, such a beautiful song choice and such an amazing tribute to him. And, yeah. uh, and and the fact that it does boost those positive emotions and it's something from the past. And I think you talk a lot about this with with grief and you you've we'll go into I think now's a good time to go into strengths because I know humor is in is in your strengths <laughs> yeah, as just. well. But um, you know, I would love to hear, you know, we talk as every you know, people who listen to this podcast on a regular basis, you know, we always talk about the via strengths which are rooted in positive psychology, which Tabby is also a positive psychologist, mental health advocate, uh, you know, and, and you know from the bio all about her, the amazing things that she's done. But with that comes the VIA strengths and the VIA strengths are created by Peterson and Seligman. Uh, lots of research to back uh, up uh, when you do use your strengths. It does help boost positive emotions, helps you thrive, so, you know, it's a free assessment. You can take it online. Uh, there are 24 character strengths and the signature strengths, which are generally your top uh, five, seven, and then you've got your middle strengths. And then you also have your lesser strengths. Now, people often think, oh, lesser strengths are weaknesses. And that's not true. We all have these 24 strengths. It's just some of them are easily accessible. And some of them take a little bit more work to get to. Yeah. And, um, but um, Tabby, you've got an amazing package of strengths. And if you don't mind, can I read them off to the audience? Yeah, please do. All right. So her number one, which I'm sure you can guys can hear in, in her voice and in her being is kindness. She's got kindness. Number two, creativity. She is a musician. And I'm sure uh, in her books and in and her life, she uses creativity uh, a lot. Uh, we've got hope in there. Um, and I'm sure you can hear that in her story that she shared with us today. Love of learning uh, is in there. And then we've got social intelligence, leadership, humor, gratitude, fairness, and perspective. 
So when I first met Tabby, when I saw these strengths, I thought to myself, oh yeah, you know, I, I, I could spot them. So, you know, I spotted, so, you know, the person, you know, when you're all going to something together or, you know, audience, I know, you know, the person, the person who puts an email out there and says, hi, I'm Tabby. And, you know, I just, I, I want to bring people together. I'm launching my book. Would you guys be up for a brunch? And then everybody starts writing. Yes, I'd love to go. Yes. And what a great experience. Yes, we'd love to celebrate your book. And and it was all, you know, we're all coaches and we're all, most of us are study positive psychology. So you can imagine it was a lot of love and a lot of positive energy of support. And, um, and then a lot of people with social intelligence in there too, who want to get together. But what I was struck by was how Tabby just took that leadership, which is in her top strength and that kindness and the warmth and that social intelligence and, and put herself out there. Bravery, uh, was in there too, to, to put yourself out there with, you know, I don't know how many coaches we had, like 60, 70 coaches. And then we all got together for brunch to celebrate. And then from that, we had like such a solid group of, of people at this conference because she put it out there. We had this amazing meeting of, of people from all over the world. Like it was amazing. And we're all at a table together, had never met each other and then, but just had the best time together. So I appreciated um, you doing that. And I can see how that's a great example of how, you know, you really were living in your strengths in that moment. And I appreciated yeah. it. Oh, thank you. That and dressing up as an inflatable unicorn and running around a square in Italy. Okay, let's not forget about that. That would be humor. And, <laughs> and bravery. <laughs> and bravery. Yes. We can go down the list. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was in Lake Como, guys. So it was a beautiful place, a beautiful conference and a great experience. And it was wonderful. Uh, to meet up with all the coach facilitators there and attendees. And so um, so with that, can you spot the strengths that you probably use the most through the grief process? And then how do you use those strengths today? Yeah, definitely. I, I think um, probably when I first started grieving, I wasn't aware of them, you know, because I started grieving when I was when I was a child. And I, and I suppose that the grief didn't start when I was 16 when my dad died. The grief started years before that when I was anticipating his death. And I think we forget about this. Anticipatory grief is such a, a huge thing that people don't acknowledge and uh, give themselves, you know, self-compassion and kindness for. But especially if you're caring for somebody, you're seeing someone is ill and you've got this thought of, you know, one day they're not going to be here. You're anticipating that grief. So it really started when I was probably 14, you know, 15, 14, 15. But yeah, I've definitely uh, reflected back. I can see how I use those strengths all the way through, but now I consciously use them. Mm -hmm. So I consciously, especially, you know, hope, hope has to be the anchor for me. There's always hope. Humor has definitely been brought into it. And sometimes a lot of very dark humor is a coping mechanism. My son has definitely inherited that one, um, you know, so yeah that gets a bit dark sometimes when we have conversations <laughs> but uh yeah so I could definitely say I think the main one I see kindness is always important but I acknowledge the fact that I don't extend self-kindness to myself as much as mm. I should and that's definitely something I I work on consciously now um, and I'm very keen to encourage other people to do it has to start with self-compassion everything has to start with self-compassion People that prioritize that, they're less likely to slip into self-loathing, less likely to experience mental health issues. So that's important. Well, I think the, the ones that I, I can acknowledge now that my kindness is really, really important to me and my character. But it's it's been my my greatest blessing, especially in terms of being able to do things like you just described, bringing people together and you know doing that and extending kindness and giving people things I can also see it's been my greatest downfall as well because I when I haven't had good levels of self-confidence it's gone too far and it has become people pleasing which has become really dangerous for me you know it literally it was that people pleasing that took me to that point of not wanting to live you know yeah. and I can I can trace that now I have that mm -hmm. that capacity and that that um psychological intelligence to be able to mm -hmm. understand that I think the one that is really key for me though of the strengths is this love of learning and I have to keep learning because so many things change all the time so I am an absolute passionate learner whether it's doing a course whether it's 
doing that to help myself, whether it's doing a course to help me then to help others to create a course or something like that. When I was doing my the MAP degree, my master's in positive psychology, one of the modules was around strengths. So we had to do the VIA character assessment mm-hmm. um, and we get this list. And what we had to do was we had to use, try and boost one of our, our phasic strengths. So one of our, our lesser strengths, we had to try and boost that. That was our focus. And I'm sitting there going, thinking, have I boost this self-regulation? And spirituality was down there, which I think actually now it's it's seen spirituality when I've done it a few years later has seen a, a real increase moved on up. my list yeah it's moved <laughs> up a lot um but it was like okay so how do I change this self-regulation I'm sitting here thinking but in my work I'm so self-regulated I'm so disciplined I'm so good but when it comes to me if it's like you know exercise diet or anything all like that I'm like you know I'm really good for a few days and then it's like no falling off that wagon <laughs> yes but um so the only way I could see in my mind to increase that was to use my tonic strength of a love of learning. So I had to use that. So in order to boost that, I go, okay, I'm going to do yoga every day for six weeks of this, this, uh, you know, this period of time that we had to do it. How am I going to make myself do that every single day? Well, the only way I'm going to be doing that is if I enroll in a yoga teacher training course. Right. So I'm a yoga instructor because that is the only way I will do that every day. And that's what I did. So I ended up with my self-regulation still flat last but hey I can teach yoga now <laughs> yes yes yeah. so yeah but for, for me going uh, every single day I'm really I think it's a real gift to be aware of your strengths because it helps you be more productive it helps you perform better but it also helps you enjoy everything so much more because you're doing things in line with your strengths and I really advocate for this whether it's in uh, organizations or individuals know what your strengths are and work in line with them yes and with people around you have a conversation what are you all good at what do you all enjoy and and fit the role to your strengths not fit yourself to the role you've got to, to the do. role absolutely and it's amazing how when you truly are living and working in your strengths how much energy you have and yeah. um how and it, it it almost feels well you can get into the flow state you know and yeah, that's absolutely. um yes 100 yeah when simon and i first set up our business in 2008 uh, mode four you know we had this ethos and I still stand by it today and that was love what you do and do what you love and that's why people say what you do is so different it's like yeah because if I don't enjoy it anymore then that's it I'm not going to yes. do it because I'm not effective it's not effective for me and it's not helping anybody else Absolutely. so people always say to me you're so full of energy for what you do even though you're doing hard things around grief and mental health it's like yeah because I love it yes and if the day comes that I don't then I'll go okay what's next yeah Yes, 100%. So with that, um, I'd love to hear, you know, how you use uh, your strengths in your new business and talk a little bit about your new program, I should say, your new program, the Perform Experience. Can you share with us a little bit about that? Because I know it just launched. Yeah, it did. So I've had this business uh, mode for that I started with Simon back in 2008. And when he died, I really had to take stock of... um, what I wanted to do of it because some bits were very much his bag but also what I had capacity to do because that's a lot when you go from two people running something to one yeah so I had this moment of time where I sort of reflect almost a year actually where I just sort of sat back and and made those decisions um and very much for me the focus came around coaching even when I was doing my music not teaching them how to play the notes, but how to manage their performance, how to manage the nerves and anxiety. And I think that's so true. You know, we teach kids to play music, but no one teaches them how to stand on a stage in front of people and not feel absolutely helpless and hopeless in that moment, you know. Um, yes. So that became very important. So, yeah, uh, I d- decided when Simon died, that became my focus. That area of the business became my focus. And so I very much uh, focused on coaching and also the mental health training. I went on to become a um, certified instructor for Mental Health First Aid England and also the National Centre of Suicide Prevention. So I had much, a lot of interest in there. But for me, it's always been the case that that isn't enough. Training people to spot signs and symptoms of mental health, training people or coaching people how to manage the grief isn't enough. Um, and especially in organizations, it's like, you know, it's just ticking a box. Okay, well, they did that course. That's it. Everyone's fit. But we're still seeing the figures around suicide rise. We're still seeing a huge increase in mental health issues. 
we're still seeing a lot of people not manage their grief and it's because we're not equipping them with the tools to manage themselves so we're teaching them how to spot signs and symptoms of illness but we're not equipping them with the strategies to be a well person yes and that was for me it was missing out of all the trainings I looked at it was just missing from everywhere and that was really the the key part of my research for my master's was looking at this of how we get people to to be um to protect their mental health because the narrative around mental health is reactive we signpost Mm -hmm. people once they are experiencing something but we're not encouraging them you know we're saying if you feel anxious then do these coping mechanisms you know, we're, so we're very reactive. And it, we need to shift that narrative to a protective one because then people don't slip below that line and, you know, fall into this realm of poor mental health. Yes. So Simon, as I said, Simon equipped me with the tools to help myself. And that's what I wanted to do for others. Help them create a toolkit of strategies that will protect their mental health, which will help them build their resilience. So when hard things happen, which they will. Yes. We've got we've got the tools to to manage it and it doesn't make it any less sad it doesn't make us any less angry it doesn't make it any less difficult but we can stay healthy with it because it is possible to hurt heal and be happy at the same time so yes I created this perform framework which is perform stands for possibilities enjoyment resilience focus optimism relationships and mindset I'm always really proud of myself when I can remember what they all said. I know, for, I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> I wasn't even reading it then. <laughs> so, yeah, so I developed this perform framework. And, you know, it was, you know, you look at things in positive psychology, such as PERMA, PERMA model that we're familiar with. Yes. You know, like and for me, that wasn't enough. It's like, there has to be more. We have, there's more to it. So that was how perform really came out of looking at uh, HOPE models and PERMA. It's like, yes. actually, no, because I want to help people perform. And performance isn't just, um, you know, if you're a musician or a sportsman, it's everyday life. Right. It's getting up every day. You know, performing yeah. as a in your work or as a parent or as a partner or just as a single person trying to function. You know, yeah, absolutely you have to perform. So that's what perform is. It builds up this well-being uh, toolkit, if you like, for people. And what I've created. So this this week, yeah, I launched the perform experience, which is now its own company in its own right. It kind of grew legs very quickly. I, I describe it as an adorable monster because I love it, but it's yes. like the whole thing's got a bit scary. <laughs> yes. So um, I want to make um, this accessible to everybody and anybody. So I've created a course, which is the flagship course, which is the perform course, which is it's got a module on mental health and mental illness overview. So you could do all that spot science, but then it connects the dots and it equips you with the skills to protect yourself with it. Nice. Um, so, so yes, we've got courses um, and all sorts going on. And a lot of it is going to be digitally based, downloadable courses, online, face-to-face, all the ways people can do it. They can access it through an app or on the computers, whatever they want. So we've got the perform course, there's mental health courses. And for anybody in the UK, if they're a member of a professional body, I think they have to do CPD hours or continue professional development hours. So we've accredited, we've had them accredited. So the courses are good. They've been assessed and accredited. Um, yes. So, yeah, so this is what the form experience is making it accessible. And I've just launched a particular course this week, which is living with your grief, which is mm. a seven day course that I've made free for people at the moment. So if anyone's living with grief and it looks at different elements, such as the Japanese art of kintsugi around broken and being beautiful. So applying that to grief looking at traditional Chinese medicine, releasing the energies off your chest. So it takes in all these different ways to help reframe grief. And one of the biggest reframes that I had is when people are grieving, they describe themselves as having a broken heart. Mm. So, and I could feel that. I could feel that what felt like a broken heart, but I had to reframe that because that thought brought so much sadness with it. So I always like to imagine it as my heart was hurting because when Simon died, he gave me all his love. And he had so much. And I'm trying to fit it into that tiny space of my heart. So the pain is just all this love squeezing into a space. Okay. It's like, you know, trying to get into those skinny jeans the size smaller. It really hurts. But, you know, (laughs) once you're there, it's like, yes, I'm there. (laughs) Yes. Yes, that's funny. Yeah. So this seven-day course, Living With Your Grief, is a really gentle course that just helps people reframe the concept of grief, um, 
how they're feeling, bringing in positive emotions, knowing that it's okay to hurt, heal, and be happy at the same time, but you can choose happiness. Okay. Yeah. And so I just guide them through the gentle way to do that. So that's such a beautiful course that I absolutely love. So that one is available. Yes. And, then, and I just want to mention uh, to the audience that um, that's going to, I'll have the link to that um, in the show notes. Um, yeah. Lovely. So Thank that, you. Yeah. So that you can see that. Yeah. And then the, because May is Mental Health Awareness Month, um, yes. and we've got a specific week here, which is Mental Health Awareness Week as well. During that week, um, I'm going to be launching something brand new, which I'm really excited about, but I've still got a lot of work to do getting it done. Um, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a mind gym. So, you know, you think when you're feeling, you know, a little bit overweight, I'm fit, I'm healthy, we go to the gym or we go for a walk. We do something to improve our physical fitness, but we don't do the same things for our minds. So the Mind Gym is going to be a place, or the core Mind Gym, a place where people can go. There's going to be free courses, free resources, videos, audios, for whatever, you know, you need in your personal life. So that might be managing grief. It might be managing stress. It might be building resilience. It might be that you want some calm and relaxation exercises. And I put them into things like like you would in a gym, stretch, flex, move, you know, calm. So it's a bit like a gym. But it just gives you the toolkit so you can build up your toolkit. There's going to be recipes in there, seven-minute recipes, seven-minute exercises. I find seven minutes is a really good length of time, but you can do so much to boost your mind, boost your resilience. So that is going minutes. to be available on a monthly subscription, just like going to the gym, but it's going to be way more effective for people because it will inspire them to go out and get that exercise or you know, physically yes. as well. Yeah, so I'm launching that in May. So that's uh, that's really exciting. And oh, you've been busy, Tabby. I know, but that for me is the piece <laughs> that's missing, especially for organisations and their workplace well-being. You know, they make the investment, they put people on a mental health course, they might get mental health first aiders, whatever they do. But for me, there has to be three tiers, and these three tiers are that organisational level. There then needs to be an individual level, which is building resilience, managing stress, all the things that affect everybody. Yes. But then there has to be this personal level. And that means yeah. making resources for what that individual person is going through in their own life. So that might be men's mental health, um, menopause, maternal mental health, grief yes. management, stress management. And so that is the idea of the mind gym. It's that personal level that has something for everybody. Beautiful. Beautiful. Love this. Love this. And so necessary. And I do love how it, you know, it covers all for, you know, from an organizational standpoint to a team, to yeah. an individual. I yeah. mean, that's, that's so important because I'm just going to leave it at that. It's, that's, that's amazing. So how do we best get a hold of you? I'm going to put the uh, link in the show notes and um, how do we get a hold of you? What's the best way uh, to learn more about your programs? Yeah, so the best way, head over to the website, www.theperformexperience.com. Um, you can find us at mode4.co.uk as well, which is our whole portfolio of different businesses, which are musical ones, weddings, ones, events, you name it, it's all there. There's about five or six different businesses under our umbrella now. Um, but wow. yeah, performexperience.com is the place to go. And hit me up on social media. So, you know, I'm just putting my name, Tabby Kerwin. There aren't many of us um, with that name around. So you will find me on LinkedIn, Insta, uh, TikTok, Facebook. Yeah, you name it, I'm there. Super, super. Thank you for that, uh, Tabby. Thanks for letting us know. And and uh, like I said, you'll find uh, these in the show notes. And then finally, the last part of the show, I'm, I'm so grateful for you know all that you've shared today. And actually, we have one more thing before we get to 80s trends. And that is Oh, I always like an action item for our audience. And uh, you had mentioned seven minutes. What would be a great action item for our audience during this time? Do you know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little bit controversial here mm. um, with my action. So seven minutes. Yeah. So it, I've, I developed this toolkit of seven minute exercises. But I think one that's really effective and probably least done for seven minutes, especially when people are so busy, their lives are so full, for seven minutes, do nothing. Lie on the ground, just lie flat and do nothing and let your brain rest. Because actually, when we do nothing, that's when everything we've learned absorbs into our body, into our mind. You know, you, th- you know, end of yoga, the best bit yes, again. Shavasana. Shavasana, when we're all lying on the floor. Yeah. It's my so favorite. Bring little, yeah. Bring a bit of that. Seven minutes of allowing yourself, give yourself permission 
to do nothing because we guilt ourselves into trying to be busy all the time. But sometimes the most productive thing we could do is nothing at all. So no tech, not listening to anything, just lie still for seven minutes. That's amazing. All right. So we all have our marching orders. We are yeah. all going do to do nothing <laughs> and do nothing for seven yeah. minutes. And that that sounds perfect. Perfect for <laughs> Mental Health Awareness Month, for sure. Definitely. So we all need to practice self-compassion and self-kindness. And in that, taking those seven minutes for yourself and just being, just being. Yeah. We, we, you know, we're called human beings, but we're not. We're human doings. Yes. So sometimes just be. And that means doing nothing, doing nothing. Absolutely. And just being the humans that we are. Yeah. So love that. And with that, let's move right into 80s trends. Um, all right. So here's the fun part, you guys. You know, wondering, Tabby, you know, you grew up, you grew up in the UK, right? Yeah. Yes. So uh, what were your 80s trends, your favorite uh, 80s trends and maybe your uh, maybe a favorite TV show? Oh, okay. Um, trends. It was all about the sort of luminous, bright colors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I remember, you know, specific sort of items of clothing that were really, really bright and out there. Um, so yeah, and it's got to be leg warmers up there as well. They were all the rage. They were all the rage. Loved God, them. Whether love you were doing warmer. ballet dancing or just trying to look cool. It was, I mean, just put them on with your chick jeans or your Jordache jeans and you're ready to exactly. go. And your pixie boots. I still love a pair of pixie yes, boots. Yes, I love those are amazing boots. And actually you can find them pretty easily yep. these days, it seems. Ankle boots are everywhere. I'm all for it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> they go with a skirt, with jeans. It's brilliant. Yes, I love it. Great, great. Now, okay, what about any uh, favorite shows that you had in the 80s? I think the, the biggest one that I remember that I loved because I used to watch it with my dad all the time was Hawaii Five-0. Oh, yes. And you have yes. to do the action. Da, 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 da. You know, da, you have to do it every time. Da, da, yeah. da, da, da. So yes. I think that's the one for me that really, you know, the original, not the remake. They've done. Bum, so, yeah. Bum, bum. yeah, I can hear so the song. Was, exactly. Yeah. So we always <laughs> used to watch that and Magnum PI as well, you know. Yes. Hits of the 80s. Yeah. I, Magnum was my favorite show. I couldn't wait. Uh, there was Simon and Simon that came on. I think it was either before or after it. I can't remember which one, but those were the two. That was a lineup and I I never yep. missed them. And uh, I absolutely loved uh, Magnum P.I. Yep. Such a great show and um, great, great choices, iconic choices. So uh, that's great. Well, uh, Tabby, once again, you know, thank you so much for sharing your story today and, and bringing in Chicago. Uh, such an amazing song. And thank you for sharing. You know, I'm, I'm sorry you went through so much grief, but how amazing it is that you said the one person that you could help. I think you're helping multitude of people by sharing your story and sharing the knowledge that you've gained both through your learning, uh, through your education, but then also things that, that you really can't learn in a book. You know, yeah. things that your lived experiences that bring such unique perspective to your business and, um, and huge congratulations, uh, on the launch of your, of your business. And, uh, you'll be able to see in the show notes also, um, from her website, how to get a hold of your books as well. Yeah. I, Cause she's got uh, a three, I believe, right. Three books yeah. now. I'm all here. Yeah. Oh, she's got them. Perfect. She's got, I know <laughs> yeah, the three pieces. <laughs> yes. The way to perform. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and that one's a nice one around for, yeah uh, the three for, taboos. taboos yeah yeah and, and that's a lot of personal stories and a lot of um get your tissues out for that one because it does have like the, the journal entries from the night simon died in my letters to him as well so yeah oh beautiful quite personal yes thank you for sharing that that's it and i look forward to connecting with you and uh and i just want to say thanks so much and until next time Indeed. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to see you. you. Take care, Tabby. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. We want to hear from you. First of all, tell us how these totally rad stories have inspired you. If you have a story with an 80s song inspiration, we want to hear it. You think this podcast is like totally tubular? Well, we would love your review. 
Stay connected with us on Podopolo and download the app today. Visit me at www.patriciafreiberg.com. Thank you, and we look forward to a double boost of inspiration next Motivational Music Monday.